Today is our fifth and final Aged and Healthcare series brought to you in association with Coroma. Coroma has revolutionised the Australian bathroom industry with a long list of innovations, including dual flush, smart flush and clean flush rimless technologies, all incorporated into Coroma LiveWell's purpose-designed solutions for accessible, aged and healthcare applications. LiveWell products are designed and engineered by Australians and have been so for nearly 80 years now. The LiveWell collection is designed with practicality and dignity in mind. The fusion of contemporary styles with discrete modifications promote comfort and independence for those with greater needs. All care solutions are designed with beautiful aesthetics you expect from all Coroma products. Find out more at coroma.com.au forward slash live well. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branka Melitic and today we have Karen Camille who has been working in the aged care sector for over 20 years. She has qualifications in community leisure and health, community services management, dementia care and education and training. She is a registered di diversional therapist and has worked in both residential and community care. During her 20 years, she has managed aged care facilities and worked as an aged care consultant. Her current role with Dementia Australia includes learning design and the facilitation of education. Her specialties include dementia-friendly design and meaningful activities for people living with dementia. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Karen Camille. Thank you. Hi, Branko, great to be here. Thank you. Um, okay, so what's your actual uh, your actual title there? So I, I don't get that wrong to start with. Sure. So my title is uh, Learning Designer and Facilitator. Learning Designer and Facilitator. I, I shall remember that. I have to write that down somewhere. Um, so let's start with a definition. What exactly is the dementia? I mean, I mean the, the, the actual definition. And how do we treat it in the context of aged care today? Mm, it's it's a tricky one, actually, and I think it has a lot of confusion, the term dementia. And I guess one of the reasons for that is because it's an umbrella term and it describes a large group of illnesses. So it's not just one particular disease. It describes a large group of illnesses which cause a, a progressive decline in a person's function. It's a broad term used to describe a loss of memory, particularly short-term memory to start with, um, issues with intellect, rationality, social skills and physical functioning. We know that it's progressive. Unfortunately, it does continue to decline for the person. The damage in the brain does become global over time. It continues and causes what we call the stages or progression of dementia as that damage continues to occur. We know it's terminal and it can happen to anyone at any age. Unfortunately, um, older people, even down to children, unfortunately. Certainly it's more common in older people because the risk of developing dementia increases as you age, but unfortunately we do see it across all ages. Um, and we do have what we call younger onset dementia, which is for people who are under 65. That is that correct term there. And definitely the definition of dementia also, if we want to think of it, is a collection of symptoms. So one person may have a symptom of, uh, short-term memory loss. They may have issues of language, finding the right words, putting sentences together. They might be getting lost in what was familiar places and spaces. So for that person, that's their symptoms, which is their dementia. So dementia itself are those symptoms. 
And there's an, always an underlying cause, a brain disease, something happening in the brain causing these symptoms. And so the name or whatever's happening in the brain, those changes that are occurring, that disease gives the dementia its name. So, for example, a person may have Alzheimer's disease type of dementia. So Alzheimer's disease being the most common reason or cause or of change in the brain, which leads to dementia. Uh, so there's always an underlying cause. It might be that they have vascular dementia caused by having a stroke or a series of many strokes. So a person doesn't just have dementia for no reason. Those symptoms are caused by underlying changes in their brain. Um, and we know it affects their ability to function on a daily basis, to do the things that they used to do every day, like driving a car, using appliances. You know, sometimes we see, unfortunately, see people with dementia putting their clothes into the dishwasher or see people microwaving bananas or putting a pizza still in its box into the oven to cook. You know, so all those things that they used to do every day, all of a sudden they're struggling with on a more regular basis, things like getting lost when they're out and about, when they never had trouble with that before, uh, and then taking longer and longer to do things, struggling with knowing what comes next and how to continue uh, to do the everything, everyday things that they've done. So it really does affect the person um, just on a daily basis, uh, all those symptoms. And as I say, it's different for every person, the symptoms that they experience. But dementia itself is the collection of symptoms, but it's caused by an underlying disease. And as I say, Alzheimer's disease is the most common reason. About 70% of all cases of dementia are because the person has Alzheimer's disease pathology in their brain causing those changes. But there's over 100 different types or causes of dementia. And I think that's why it's such a complicated and uh, confusing term to describe because it, it is complex. And most of the time, as I say, it's Alzheimer's disease as the, the, the most common cause, but other things like I said, vascular dementia by strokes, or it could be frontotemporal dementia, which occurs in the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. So again, different proteins causing changes in the brain. It could be related to Parkinson's, uh, it could be alcohol related. And then there's another one that's actually been in the news a lot over the last few years, which is uh, what we call CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is to do with head injury from, you know, concussions. We're finding more and more as we're looking at um, it, why people are, you know, having the symptoms that they're having later in, the lo in life. And we're finding that it's perhaps from concussions over the years. And, it, you know, it really, it's affecting a lot of, you know, 20% of people who do those extreme sports do develop dementia. So, yeah, we're finding more and more about that one all the time. Yeah. So, and there's no cure, is there? Correct. There is no cure. The best that we can do at this point in time is to slow the progression right. uh, by keeping the person active and, you know, independent as possible. But unfortunately, at this stage, there's no cure. We're certainly doing a lot of research and studies on what we can do to, to try and prevent it or cure it. But at this stage, we unfortunately, we can't. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about, um, you know, Dementia Australia. I mean, how does it fit into the whole management of, the, of this condition? Which I assume, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, the condition is is becoming more widespread because, I mean, we're all getting older, aren't we? So, yes. <laughs> so how does Dementia Australia fit into all this and, and what does it do? 
Sure. So uh, we're the peak body for dementia in Australia and we've been around for 30 years, but we've developed over the years in terms of who we are and what we do. But we've certainly been representing people with dementia and their carers for a long time. Uh, but we represent advocates and also people living with dementia and the needs of more than uh, there's 472,000 people living with dementia at the moment in wow. Australia. Okay, that's a lot. It is a lot. So if we, we think about that and break it down, it's 250 people every day uh, developing dementia in Australia. And what we will find is that with time, uh, it will continue to, like you said, it's going to continue to increase because of the ageing population and we'll find ourselves over a million people in years to come. So it really is the chronic disease of this century. Um, and we, we also support 1.6 million people who are involved in the care of people living with dementia, and that's paid and unpaid carers as well. Uh, so we will support people living with all types of dementia for their families and for their carers as well through the provision of support services. We've got education, we've got information. Uh, and across the country, because we're a national organisation, we provide a range of services and supports. And some of these are, we have a dementia helpline, which is open from 8am to 8pm Monday to Friday. It provides information about dementia, memory loss, and it also gives support and directions to, to get services in the person's area. It has information on how to reduce your risk of getting dementia, because as we say, we can't prevent dementia, we can't stop it but we can slow it down and we can reduce our risk of developing it. That's kind of the best that we can do at this stage. Um, and we also, the help helpline also provides emotional support and counselling too. Uh, so we have counselling one-on-one and in group situations as well that we can provide face-to-face -face plus virtually if needed. We've got lots of uh, help sheets and resources on our website. So there's all the information you can imagine available on there. Uh, we've got early intervention programs. We have a Living with Dementia series, education series for the person soon after they're diagnosed with dementia and also for their family or their carer as well to come along to. It just helps them to start, you know, uh, well in terms of what services they might need to plan for the future. And it also provides peer support too for them and for the carers as well. Lots of information and advice. We have younger onset dementia services, so for those under 65, that's certainly an area that is growing and unfortunately there's not much available in terms of accommodation for when you're a younger person. You know, it's kind of if you need that, it's residential aged care or what do you do? You know, so really it's a difficult one. We're still trying to work out what's the best way to assist people to live with dementia if they need that higher care and they're younger. So that's certainly an issue. Uh, we have carer support groups, we have a library and information service, and then as I said, we've got a whole range of education programs. Uh, I myself work for the Centre for Dementia Learning, which is the arm of Dementia Australia, which is our professional education arm. So we provide uh, education to clinicians, to health professionals uh, of all settings, um, yeah, as from a hospital setting, from a residential care setting, from the community. So we do provide education um, in the centre of dementia learning, but we also provide it to carers, to the community, to the general public and to people with dementia as well. So we have lots of services across Australia that we can provide and we're really active also in um, things like research, studies, 
um, advocacy. We also do awareness, lots of public awareness activities and fundraising activities as well. So we're very active in this space and have been for a long time. Mm. I, I, read you, I read your sheet. I, I believe I'm not allowed to call it a disease, am I? Um, but it's one of those conditions that... <laughs> yeah, conditions. Is a good word. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah. um, that makes, you know, COVID a lot more dangerous than it, than it really is. So how, how have you guys handled it? Because I know we've, we've seen, you know, and this sort of uh, predicates what I'm going to ask later on about design, but we've seen the issues with, well, particularly with um, aged care in Victoria and, and mm. there, but how have you guys handled this? Yeah, so I guess this has been a real challenge for us in a number of ways. Now, some interesting, actually, some interesting information that's come out of COVID from talking to people with, living with dementia and their family carers is that, interestingly, they tell us that they feel like they've been in lockdown since they had dementia. So for them, in some ways, COVID was kind of no change because they feel like they're restricted in where they can go. Um, limited in the spaces that are available to them. They feel isolated. Um, often they don't have visitors because people don't know what to do once the person has dementia. They don't know what to say, so they'll stop visiting. They'll stop um, contacting them. So in a lot of ways we've heard that they kind of, this is how they feel all the time, that they feel like they've been in lockdown since they developed dementia. So interesting, isn't it, that now that we, as people who don't have dementia, we've experienced lockdown. We've experienced maybe a little bit of what it's like now for people living with dementia. So interesting if we look at it from that aspect. So uh, lots of uh, stories from people living with dementia that that's how they feel. And maybe we're hoping that for, for us who have experienced it without dementia that we can maybe have some more compassion and realise how hard it is uh, for people with dementia when they feel like we did when we went through lockdown ourselves, which was really difficult. Um, and also in terms of the aged care sector, you know, we've seen um, it's demonstrated lots of gaps, I guess, that we weren't ready for, we weren't prepared for um, in terms of vulnerability of our older um, people, particularly those with dementia. Uh, we've seen one of the big issues certainly was that with our staffing, you know, often because we have limited staff in aged care, they were often working at multiple sites. And, and then that wasn't allowed during lock, lockdown, which left a lot of places really short-staffed. Um, staff were sometimes even living in the facilities because, you know, there was no point going home because they were needed so much. So it really raised the issue, I guess, of the uh, short staff that we find in, in aged care that really um, we can't do that in the future. We can't be using them at multiple sites because of um, pandemics like this or something else um, causing issues or lockdowns or whatever for that reason. I think the staffing issue is a big one for many reasons, but particularly in this instance because we're used to sharing them. We share staff all the time between organisations and facilities within an organisation. So that's certainly been highlighted. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of the effects and the impact of COVID is still being examined. We're still exploring that. You know, there's still... Um, today I just got a survey through about the impact that um, I believe that COVID's had on people with dementia. So we're still exploring that. So I don't think we fully know the impact yet of that. But um, I think it's been a very challenging time for people with dementia who just didn't know. A lot of the media that was coming on television, it was for them it was very scary, very confusing. The messaging, getting different messaging or not get any messaging or you know, so I think from a 
information perspective, uh, it was very difficult for them to know what's going on. It just added, I think, levels of confusion for people with dementia. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned CTE, which is mainly, mainly to do with sports or people, ageing sports people, dare I say, um, and also younger onset dementia. What are uh, some of the changing needs for aged care when it comes to dementia that, that you, you're seeing now and maybe in the very near future? Yeah, and like we said before, in terms of um, providing appropriate accommodation for young people, that's certainly an area and a changing need. Uh, but certainly also we know that 70% of people who are living with dementia actually live in the community and we want people to stay in their homes for as long as possible, you know, because it's more familiar, they can continue to have their relationships uh, and their experiences uh, within their home and their community that they're used to. So that's really what we want to happen, which means because we're assisting people to stay in their homes for longer, which is great, what that then means is that when a person can no longer live at home and needs to move into an aged care facility, what that means is they're coming into the facility at a later stage of their dementia, which means at more complexities, more comorbidities, more health issues for the uh, aged care facilities to be set up for. So, you know, when I started working 20 years ago, the people with dementia who were living in the facilities were so much more independent than people who are now coming into aged care uh, because of keeping people at home, which is great. But as I say, as a result of that is needing to set facilities up to assist people with more complex needs because they're coming in in their later stages of dementia. You know, when we look at some statistics, according to a recent study, 68% of residents in aged care are known to have moderate to severe cognitive impairment. So it means designing for it, means setting up care practices that support that, those complexities. Yeah, so that's certainly one big issue. Uh, that we're going to, we have facing now and we're going to face in the future as we assist people to live at home. But not only that, but having more people developing dementia. So there's going to need to be more services than we already have now. We're already not having enough home care packages. So yes, there might be some more of them coming, which is great, but there's still going to be more people needing them. So I think we do have some challenges in terms of uh, those care settings and being more designed for people in those um, further along stages of dementia and complexities of care. Coroma proudly present the medical range for hospital and medical infection control. Our medical collection is designed specifically for superior hygiene control, product performance and compliance in hospital and medical applications. The range incorporates the latest in easy clean surface and infection control technology. Products are designed with durability in mind to survive the everyday pressures of life in commercial health and medical environments. Find out more at coroma.com.au forward slash live well. That's coroma.com.au forward slash live well. And now back to our podcast. Interesting. Okay, so design plays a role here, doesn't it? Um, yes. Maybe, maybe more so than, than ever before. So um, the experience of a person with dementia tends to be overlooked in the design from what I, well, my rough sort of reading of, 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 of design principles. Um, yes. you, know, the, you know, living with dementia should frame design. 
I guess yes. that, would, that would make sense if we took, especially with aged care, I mean, really. <laughs> this involves seeing the wall through the eyes of people living with dementia or looking, you know, what do they call it, from the, looking out from the inside, I believe, well, that, that's, that's the right term. Um, how mm. would you, so, so let's say you had the, the ability to, to teach a bunch of architects and designers and builders and whatnot what needs to be done. Um, how, what would you? How would you? What would you teach them? Where would you start? And what would be the most important things that they need to take away from from, from the lesson? Sure. So we do have education programs that we do deliver to people in the design space, which I can talk about later if you like. But certainly in time, in terms of what I would really want people in this space to know, the first thing is um, just to ask some really important questions. So. Three questions. The first one is, who is the space for? So who are you designing the space for? Second question is, what is the function or the purpose of the space? And is it going to be obvious as to its functionality? And the third question then is, does the design fulfil the purpose and the needs of who you're designing the space for? Because like you say, often when we design at the moment, the designs that we're seeing, the new builds we're seeing are built for not necessarily the people who are living there. So a lot of places that I go to now uh, look like a hotel. You know, you go into the foyer, they do. And, you know, that's very nice. You know, you go, you go in there and you think, wow, it's a big space, looks like a big foyer, there's, big, there's you know, long desks like you see in concierge, you know, hotels. I went to one the other day and they even had those trolleys that you put bags on to take to rooms. They even had a couple of them. And then they have big dining areas that look like restaurants. So they look very nice. They're very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, bathrooms are clean and clinical with white and light grey. There's much colour or contrast, but they look clean. They're crisp. And this seems to be um, the current sort of design that I see in a lot of builds for aged care. And often what they're building for is not necessarily the person who's going to be living there, but perhaps the person such as the family who are assisting to admit their family to live there. So if it looks nice, it looks fancy, oh, this is good, this is clean, this is pretty, then perhaps they're more likely to actually look at admitting their loved one there. So unfortunately, that's kind of what we're seeing in a lot of design at the moment is, is that kind of a look. So I guess the question is to those three questions, who's the space for? Because that's who we really want to design for if we're in the ideal world, isn't it? Uh, there's a, a quote by uh, one of our clients, actually, who said, if you design for dementia, you get it right for everyone. And I think that's so true because we know that people who are ageing, even if they don't have a cognitive impairment such as dementia, we know they still have issues. They have sensory impairments. They have other issues with uh, the environment. They have um, how, you know, acuity issues going from light to dark, dark to light, and they have issues with um, yeah, lots of things that are going on as we age. So they too will benefit from the design of, of the dementia design. Uh, you know, the other day I was at uh, a new build and they'd opened, they'd recently opened, and there was this lovely lady elderly lady sitting at the dining table and I could hear her saying who do I pay how do I pay for my meal and she was really getting upset because the staff was saying no you're fine you don't have to pay and I looked around and I thought you know what this looks 
does this look like a home? My home certainly doesn't look like it. It looked like a restaurant. And what do you do when you're in a restaurant or you're in a hotel? You have to pay. You know, so it made perfect sense why she was asking that question. And unfortunately, with the design, such as looking more like a hotel or not looking like a home, it does create that confusion for them to ask those questions. So we're designing to actually cause confusion rather than setting up a space that's really familiar, that's more intimate, because we know people with dementia can't store the information uh, in their brain because of the damage from whatever the cause is or the type of their dementia. They can't, their, their brain isn't giving them the right information to function. So what they're looking for is the answers around them. So they're looking for the external environment to provide them with the answers. So the other question is, when you're in a facility or an aged care setting, if you look around, can you find the answers you need? Can you find where to find the toilet? Can you find where to go and have something to eat? Can you find where to find your bedroom if, you, if you're tired? So I think they're the really important things is when you design uh, and when you're looking at a building design or interior is to really ask, if I had dementia and I, my brain wasn't giving me the answers, then can I find them around me? And if I can't, that's when we have to look at what we need to put in place for, for it to be obvious for the person to find those answers. Yeah. spot on there Karen I, was, I just remind me recently I covered a, a brand new aged care that had just opened a mm. very, very large and very well known one I won't mention the name and it was beautiful don't get me yes. wrong it was stunning I mean really I, 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 would, I could move in there in, yes. you know, quite, quite easily but you went into the rooms and you really started looking around for the for the bar fridge and, and wondering you know where's the where's the pack of twisties that cost 40 bucks and, yeah you know, yeah. you really had that hotel, you know, sort yeah. of like a, a small boutique hotel um, yes. feel about it. And, and, and it was it was kind of strange because it's something that you just said now too. My home doesn't look like that. I don't think anyone's home looks like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, so on that point, so there, there's kind of, well, I won't say the bad examples, but the, probably the, the direction we don't want to go in. But yeah. recent or it doesn't have to be local, it can be from overseas even a case study or example that your opinion would be best in practice when it comes to um, dementia design? Sure. So some of the examples of, that I've seen I've been involved with, and then later I can talk about a particular one that's a very new build that's happening overseas. But uh, this year I've, I've done a few um, reviewing of plans of some hospitals actually around New South Wales uh, and in Canberra. And I've been very impressed. There's been a lot of thought put into them and um, very impressed with some of their uh, ideas, which is particularly in acute care setting. You know, it's very clinical. It's very medical model minded. So I think it's really innovative that some of these places are looking at different ways of helping the patients. Uh, and so these have been some geriatric wards and what they've done is uh, rebuild. So they've gutted and then they've looked at the whole design. They've included some single rooms um, they've included uh, things like they've divided the bigger wards into smaller spaces. So we 
at Dementia Australia, we recommend the small house model of no more than 15 people with dementia in a space. So it's more intimate, so it's easier to find things. Um, so they certainly have also implemented that model as well. Uh, removed their, you know, the common multiple bed wards, they've removed those. Um, they also looked at biophilia, including out, the outside inside, because a lot of these wards don't have access to the outside area, which we know is so important, and uh, that people with dementia have access to the outside, to fresh air, to the sunshine. Uh, so they've introduced biophilia inside in different ways. Uh, they also looked at another, another approach called salutogenesis, which was actually developed by Professor Richard Fleming a few years ago, who talked about some of these hospitals for children, particularly the Royal Melbourne Hospital for Children, where they have these big tanks with sharks and um, fish, big fish tanks in the middle of the staircase, and they have meerkats on display. You know, so what they do, which is fabulous, so it's all about, salutogenesis is about having a healthy environment that actually fosters well-being rather than disease. So, you know, a lot of these places that I did the review for have actually taken on that approach and have looked at ways of bringing in certain artwork or different features that actually promote health rather than concentrating on disease. So it's been really good to see that, particularly in an acute spare, uh, acute care space because that's such a clinical medical model. But they've been able to bring in aspects that are more homely and certainly more about well-being than about um, disease and being unwell. So tell me about that place you mentioned about overseas, because I'm, I'm actually interested. Yes. I've been actually to, to the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital, so actually I, 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 I kind of know it, well, kind of. Yeah. I didn't see any meerkats, but anyway, that's, that's, that's what <laughs> um, I'm the kind of I'm the kind of guy who probably, you know, who'd, who'd miss the hospital if, if, if you need <laughs> to find it. So but tell me about the yeah. place overseas. I mean, that's, that's, that's intriguing because, you know, yes. it's like it's always good. I mean... How would I say it's it's good to foster local talent, but there's nothing like yes. getting ideas from overseas if they work. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you know, we've got some some new designs. There's one in um, Hobart, actually, in Tasmania, that are doing a uh, like a village feel with with some um, facilities like shops and hairdressers and cafes, and um, they've got you know, smaller village units and things, which is great. So we do, like you say, we have some local, but there's a really interesting one that's actually just, um, I guess, this project has just started this year and it's actually in uh, Colorado and one in Texas and it's called Kalamos, which is a Greek term. Um, and so it's actually about, it's founded by Dr Bill Thomas, who has been in the aged care space and um, looked at, all different models of design. He's done many over the years. So he's uh, part of the, he's one of the founders and also Nancy Fox and who's been working in the field for ages too. So Calamos recognises a human need for living in community um, and they recognise loneliness and isolation are just as deadly uh, as diseases are to the human body. And their project is an intergenerational living and communi community style living where everyone can help each other so they're creating these villages for intergenerational living. So anyone can live there. And the idea is that they're small communities and that they help each other out by having these smaller communities 
of different ages, different skills, different abilities, different needs that they can all help each other out. Um, with these small villages housing people of all ages. And they have care partners if the, the people living in the village need extra care needs, such as if they have dementia or they're elderly and they need assistance, then they have care partners who come in and help as well. So they have it has that care aspect to it as well. So uh, it would be really interesting to see how that project progresses. So just recognising that, that intergenerational uh, aspect, which I think is important because we, we see lots of studies of university students living with an older person and how beautifully that works. You know, we've seen the, the program about the, the children in the daycare with the older people. So we see the benefits there, but in terms of living and actually setting it up to be that kind of a project, I think that'll be really interesting to see that how that goes from a design perspective. Yeah. So, look, I went to your website and I found that you guys have 10 guiding principles. Yes. Design. Um, these are called the Dementia Enabling Environment Principles, yeah? Yes. Right, well, yeah, okay. So, I'll list out each one, one by one, and if and after I list, list out, if you just give me a one or two sentence explanation of what sure. it actually means, because... Um, I mean, some are kind of self-explanatory, but yeah. some I think are a little bit more. Okay, so principle number one, unobtrusively reduce risks. Yes, yeah, so this one is about really keeping the person safe without it being obvious to them that you're keeping them safe. For, for example, having fences but having foliage, bushes, trees in front of them so they can't see that they're being safe, in, that we're keeping them safe so they feel oh, there's nice trees there rather than, oh, there's a fence keeping me in here. Another example is exit doors. Often people with dementia try to, uh, might like to leave for various reasons, whereas if we can paint it the same colour as it surrounds, it becomes flat, camouflaged as a door then. It just looks like a wall. It becomes boring. There's nothing of interest there. So hopefully they don't see it and they move to somewhere else where there's interest. So we're keeping them safe within the space, but it's unobtrusive and they don't necessarily see that that's what's happening. Yep. Okay. Principle number two, provide a human scale. So this one's about that um, principle where we talked about having smaller spaces, more intimate spaces. So it's about having a space that's not too big too large so the person feels where they fit within that so not having high ceilings not having huge rooms but the person sort of feels like a person their size within a space without it being overwhelming yeah okay um unless, unless of course you're my mother who needs a chandelier the size of a small <laughs> kitchen you fair enough too yeah principle number three allow people to see and to be seen Yes, so this one is important in terms of visual access for the person with dementia, but also the staff. So it's about line of sight. So things like when they're in their room and they wake up in the morning, if they look around in front of them, can they see the toilet? Can they see the bathroom? Or if they come out of their room and they look one way, then they look to the other way, can they see something of interest? Do they have line of sight to a common area or a lounge room? Or do they just have line of sight to a cor corridor, a dead end, where there's nothing happening, so they'll go back into their room. So it's about them having line of sight to areas of interest or areas of need, but also staff having good visual access or line of sight to keep an eye on them, to keep them safe and to, 
to assist them if they need to. That one looks like it's probably one of the most important when it comes to design. Yeah, yeah very, very important indeed. Yeah. Okay. Principle number four, reduce unhelpful simulation. Yeah. So we know a person with dementia, the environment in terms of noise, in terms of movement, in terms of sight, smells, sounds, all those sensory experiences, the person often becomes overloaded because they can't reduce, they can't, um, what's the word, isolate, or they can't focus on something else. So what happens is all those sensory experiences at once become a big barrage of sound, of, of experience, of um, noise, of, you know, distraction. So it's really about uh, taking those away, minimising them, like turning down the television or turning the television off, making sure the trolleys don't, you know, make a noise when you push them, clang, clang, clang as they go along, making sure the doors don't bang, that they have buffers, uh, making sure that, um, you know, there's good, good lighting, you know, because poor lighting is another issue as well, or pools of light. So taking away anything that's unhelpful to them, that they might see, hear, taste, smell, so forth, all the senses. Okay, principle five, optimise helpful stimulation. So this one's about environmental cues, like using the use of contrasting colours to highlight residents' doors or resident areas. Uh, using signage. So we want to have good signage to support them to find what they're looking for, uh, the dining room or their bedroom or, say, the bathroom or the toilet, maybe labelling cupboards, um, having that good natural lighting and sounds of nature that are actually helpful to them to give them the answers. As I said, they can't store or get the information from up here, so they need to use what's around them. They're looking for that to give them appropriate and helpful stimulation. Okay. Um, principle number six, support and movement and engagement. So this one is about how you set up uh, in terms of the environment, in terms of, say, arranging chairs in a certain way so that the functionality of the space is obvious. So you might set chairs up looking at each other. So that's like a that automatically says this is a place where you can go and you can socialise and chat and engage with other people. So it, it gives an invitation really to use the environment. It's also things like your internal and external circular pathways. So we want people with dementia to be able to, when they're walking around, to be able to walk in that circular motion and, and it, for that uh, path to take them past points of interest and engagement rather than to dead ends or to exit doors or to a gate in a garden. So we want those circular paths to, um, to support their movement within the facility or the aged care setting and also for engagement while they're actually um, going on that um, circular path. Okay, principle number seven, create a familiar space. Yes, so this one's about opportunities for personalisation. So how can the... How will the person find what they're looking for? Will they know it's their bedroom? How will they know it's their bedroom? How will they know that's their space? So it increases the functionality of them using it. Also, we want it to be obvious that a space is a space for a certain function. So when they come into an area, they know that's where you eat your meal. They come to an area and they know that's where you relax. That's where you read a book. That's where you like a lounge type of area. Uh, so we, what we really want is the functionality of the spaces to be obvious and familiar. So thinking about uh, it being appropriate to the people who are living there on, the, on that sort of a 
a common basis. Everyone's different, but looking at your, your generality of who you've got there and how you might set that up. So making it familiar and making it obvious and making, making it personalised. And maybe that one should be called and um, do not design your aged care to look like your <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. principle number eight. Provide opportunities to be alone or with others. Yeah, so just recognising that, you know, for most of us as humans, sometimes we like to be interacting with others. Other times we like to shut the door and just be by ourselves. So it's about a variety of spaces. So if the person wants to be alone, they can do that. If they want to be with visitors who come and uh, want to be with them, they can do that in a space. Or if they want to do it with more people, they can do that in a space. So it's just having a variety of spaces that allow them to interact in different ways. Okay, principle nine, provide links to the community. Yeah, so obviously really important when you're living in a particularly residential aged care and you kind of, you don't go out much, <laughs> you're kind of stuck in that facility uh, unless someone helps you go out and you have activity programs. So it's really about not only going out to the community, but also inviting the community in, keeping those links, whether it's through maybe you might design a cafe into your plan where the public can come, or maybe you might have a childcare centre or you have play groups that you invite to come in, uh, or you might use your hire out your outdoor space or hire out your lounge area for parties or for other events. So it's really linking in with the community, inviting them in as well as going out to, and keep maintaining that sense of being part of a larger community. Okay, and last but not least, principle 10, respond to a vision for way of life. Yes, so this one is about ensuring that the design of the um, facility or the care setting actually responds to the model of care, I guess, as to the organisation, how the organisation wants to uh, assist people. So it might be the model of care might be something like um, person-centred, so it needs to reflect. So the design needs to reflect the organisation's model of care, mission, vision, values and goals, all that kind of thing. So maybe they uh, believe in the Montessori method and that, again, has different principles to do with how you set up a particular environment. So it's really based on knowing the organisation's uh, way of life, so to speak. It's knowing their model of care and designing a build that actually suits and enables them to carry that model of care out. So, Karen, well, that was very interesting, actually. Thank you for that. So would you say... In the past, I don't know, 25 or so years, we've made great strides in, in dementia design, but at the same time, do you think um, that we have a ways to go? Uh, and, and in your opinion, I mean, you, you're obviously quite knowledgeable in this area and probably would have experienced. Um, where do you, do you think we need to get to in terms of design where we've reached that optimum possible design for, for dementia um, uh, uh, patients? Yeah. It's a really good question. And it's interesting, like you say, it's, it's actually these 10 principles we just talked about were initially developed in 1987 by um, Professor Richard Fleming, who actually, and then they've been adapted over the years and, um, you know, modified, I guess, and, and refined. But really, he's been working in this space and using similar principles, you know, for all that time. So like you say, it's sort of, it has come away and we do see, some of the principles and we see some fabulous things you know and I'm not meaning to always be negative but 
we do see negative as well. So, you know, I think I think we have come a long way and we do see some of the changes. And just the fact that people ring us and say, can you come and do an audit for us of our environment? Or we do get calls to review their plans before they're built. So it's encouraging. We do see that. Um, but what where we've really seen some change in the last few years is in the community space. So Dementia Australia, we have a dementia-friendly communities uh, website plus program. And that really is about looking at how we can make the communities and the public spaces dementia-friendly. So using the same principles, but looking at our libraries, looking at um, community centres, looking at um, other spaces where the shops, you know, um, things like healthcare centres and medical centres, how we can actually make them dementia-friendly. And also we have a Dementia Friends program where we train up you know, the people who work in the shops, the people who are working in the centres and the libraries to give them the basic knowledge and awareness of dementia to assist someone too because we know 70% of people with dementia live in the community, so they're going to frequent those places. So in the design space of um, things like, you know, your retail and even transport, you know, I've done some reviews with uh, light rail and with trains, with tra taxis as well, uh, in that space where people with dementia out in the public, they're using them. So I think we've seen a lot of principles, these principles, a lot of design in that space lately, more so than we probably have in the, you know, more of the aged care builds, the, the nursing homes and uh, things like that. So it's been encouraging to see in the space of the community to see more design that's more dementia friendly. Uh, so that's encouraging. But I do think in terms of moving forward, you know, it would be great, particularly with just having the Royal Commission into Aged Care, which has identified some issues with environments, people living with dementia. Uh, I think going forward, it would be great if there was some kind of legislation that made sure that when they do do a new build, they include the 10 principles or they have to consult about the 10 principles in their, into their design. Um, but I think somehow if we can get those 10 principles mandated somehow or we can also look at university students who are, you know, training in architecture, training in interior design or even landscaping. We've had landscapers also consult us about outside areas. You know, I think if we can get into universities and we can do some of our education that we provide, um, that would be really helpful going forward too. So I think if we can get into different spaces at different levels, um, but I think those 10 principles are just really important. Um, and our education program, which is our EDI program, which the EDI stands for Educational Dementia Immersive Experience, and it's virtual reality. We have lots of virtual reality programs. We even have AI and avatars that do different um, programs. But our EDI program, it's called EDI for Design, and it's where we use the virtual reality goggles and we've, uh, we've um, developed a scenario with Deakin University uh, using gaming technology. And it's a scenario of a person living with dementia trying to navigate their environment. And so when you experience this scenario, you're walking in the shoes of that person with dementia. And it has all kinds of issues to do with the environment, how that person actually sees the environment. And it's actually been created with the help of 20 people living with dementia. So it's very much what people see. 
when they live with dementia. So it's really powerful. And we would recommend anyone working in this design space to, to do it. You know, we've had architectural firms, we've had interior designers, as I say, landscapers, town planners. Um, we've had lots of people actually do this program. And they've said how powerful it is because, they're like you said, you need the opportunity to walk in the person's shoes. You can't understand anything until you've had that personal experience yourself. So that program is really powerful and it talks about the impacts of we then workshop the impacts of what this man experienced in this scenario. So um, using the virtual reality technology. So it's really powerful to assist the the designers and architects to understand it a little differently from a personal level. Yeah. So I've got to say, Karen, if you want the law change, apparently that there'll be an election later on this year. I think the government might be open to all sorts of suggestions, <laughs> I reckon. Um, Karen Camille from Dementia Australia, thank you very much for your time. That's got to be the, one of the most educational podcasts I've done in months. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. It was lovely to meet you. And thank you very much for having me. We may well meet again, Karen. So you take care. Take care. And um, yeah, until next time. Yes, thank you. Okay, you've been listening to Talking Architectural Design. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you to our wonderful health and aged care series sponsor, Coroma. Coroma proudly present the medical range for hospital and medical infection control. Our medical collection is designed specifically for superior hygiene control, product performance and compliance in hospital and medical applications. The range incorporates the latest in easy clean surface and infection control technology. Products are designed with durability in mind to survive the everyday pressures of life in commercial health and medical environments. Find out more at coroma.com.au forward slash live well. That's coroma.com.au forward slash live well. I'm Branko Melodic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.